Louder! Everybody and welcome to Lights Camera Exploitation, your guide to exploitive cinema. This is the Pod Boss, T.J. Bowser, and Johnny. As always, is my doppelganger, Kanga Banger from Down Under, Mr. Brody Kane. Eddie Duty, my fellow peeps, and the slickest of all the Nicks, Mr. Slick Nick. Hello, everybody. Today we have a doozy of an episode, but first, it's time for your slice of life, Brody. How goes it? Yep, uh, it all goes well. It all goes well in my neck of the motherfucking goddamn woods. Um, look, honestly, I can't really think of what I've done this week other than the fact that I've just worked. Working, working, working. That's pretty much it. Um, haven't even bought any fucking new Blu-rays. New bl- oh, well, I might actually. I might buy one today that <laughs> Eastern Promises, Kino, was it Kino fucking- um, Kino Lorbear. That's the one. That's the one. So. I saw that while I was on the shitter this morning and it looked absolutely gorgeous. So I thought I'd better send Mr. Bowser the fucking article on Facebook and he uh, he approves. So. Yes. Oh. So that'll look good on the old fucking Blu-ray player. But yeah, look, to be honest, other than that, not not much. Yeah, I'm a pretty fucking boring person. How about you, Slick Nick? Well, my friend, I too am a pretty boring person. Uh, yeah, no, mostly just, um, just working this week. Uh, I've got some family stuff coming up this week ahead. So it's kind of nice to get a break before all of that uh, birthday stuff and everything. Um, probably going to end up playing Elden Ring here before too long as well. So we can finally jump on that train a little bit like late. Like everybody else in the world right now. <laughs> like literally yeah. every human being playing that. <laughs> I was <laughs> but, uh, Sheila in the gym last night about it. And she said it's like the hardest fucking game she's ever played. Huh. And she nearly smashed her fucking TV up over it. So <laughs> Giant open world Dark Souls is basically what it is. Uh I, my friends have all played all the Dark Souls games together pretty much. And Dark so Souls, I have notoriously known as the easiest game series of all time. The simplest, <laughs> easiest. You don't <laughs> fight a boss 47 times before you beat it and then move on to the next one. <laughs> but like even even people who've never played the Souls games or don't even like them. I've yeah. uh, started playing Elden Ring. Like Ryan hates all the Souls games and he's been talking about getting it too. Um, but yeah, no, that's what I'm probably going to end up doing. But yeah, for the most part this week, not a lot. TJ, were you also boring this week or did you do things sir well i was productive as fuck i actually did a lot of writing this week with brody brody didn't mention that though uh (laughs) i was leaving it up for you (laughs) we made some (laughs) crazy headway on our project uh, if you've been following us on this podcast, I've kind of mentioned it in the past, but we're working on a comic book, and we just got a really cool producer attached to the project, and I can't wait to announce that to the public. It's going to be awesome. We got some more artwork back. Everything is looking absolutely on point. I went on Vinegar Syndrome, and I added some stuff to my order uh, yesterday. I ordered Beauty Day and the new Vinegar Syndrome Cotton Candy Easter shirt, because it looks so and yeah, just kind of watching movies, reread the comics of uh, The Crow, comics one through five. Yeah, those are awesome. But yeah, just kind of keeping things going here at Project Louder and trying to get stuff done and stay productive. But I'm excited to talk about this week's film. And this week's film is 2008's Lake Mungo. 
The following is based on true events. Can you interpret dreams? Mm. Sometimes. How do you feel when you wake up from these dreams? They scare me a bit. For Alice Palmer, underneath the hopes of a bright future were suspicions. I feel like something bad is going to happen to me. That death was near. You scared of dying? Yeah, of course I'm scared of dying. That was the last time that I saw her. I kept hearing noises in the hallway. It hasn't reached me yet, but it's on its way. I feel like I can't do anything. I think Ellie saw a ghost. I didn't have any rational explanation for who was in those photos. Something was happening inside that house and I wanted to find out what it was. There was a ghost in the house. And that is from director Joel Anderson, written by Joel Anderson, cinematographer John Brawley, who also did 100 Bloody Acres in 2012, Scare Campaign in 2016, and The Great in 2020. Music by David Patterson, production design by Penny Southgate, who worked on Takeaway 2003, Boytown 2006, and Downriver in 2015. Costume design by Michael Chisholm, who worked on Attack of the Sabretooth in 2005, a TV movie. That was directed by George Miller. Storm Warning from 2007, and The Legend of Ben Hall in 2017. Producers William Coleman, Gilbert George, Robert George, Georgie Neville, and David Rapsey. Visual effects supervisor Matthew Macarith, who worked on The Avengers in 2012, Alita Battle Angel in 2019, and Mortal Kombat! in 2021 budget 1.7 million australia starring rosie trainer as june palmer who was also in the secret life of us in 2002 a tv series cut snake in 2014 and method in 2017 a tv series david pledger as russell palmer who starred in one night stand in 1984 grievous bodily harm in 1988 and the dr blake mysteries in 2016 a tv series martin sharp as matthew palmer who starred in blue healers from 2002 to 2000 a TV series, Scooter, Secret Agent in 2005, a TV series, and Wetworth in 2016, another TV series. Brody, a lot of these are Australian TV shows, right? Absolutely. Blue Healers is a downright fucking classic, um, and Wentworth is a fantastic watch if you're looking for a female prison drama to suss out, so... If uh, you've seen any of the oh. other shows that I mentioned in the upcoming notes, let me know. Talia Zucker as Alice Palmer, who starred in Ned Kelly in 2003, Scooter, Secret Agent in 2005, a TV series, and Motel Acacia in 2019. Tiana Latini as Georgie Ritter, who starred in Stingers in 2003, a TV series, Mates in 2008, and Neighbors in 2012, another TV series. Cameron Strachan as Lee Ritter, Judith Roberts as Iris Long, who starred in The Drifting Avenger in 1968, Strange Fits of Passion in 1999, and Torn in 2019. 2010. Robin Cumming 
as Garrett Long, who starred in The Last Bastion in 1984, Moby Dick in 1998, and Blonde in 2001, and last, but certainly not leastly, Marcus Costello as Jason Whittle, who starred in Fergus McPhail in 2004 TV series, Satisfaction 2008 TV series, and Beneath Hill 60 in 2010. Slickless, Nicholas, taketh away. 16-year-old Alice Palmer drowns while swimming in the local dam. When her body is recovered and a verdict of accidental death returned, her grieving family buries her. The family then experiences a series of strange and inexplicable events centered in and around their home. Profoundly unsettled, the Palmers seek the help of psychic and parapsychologist Ray Kemeny. Ray discovers that Alice led a secret double life. A series of clues lead the family to Lake Mungo, where Alice's secret past emerges. Okay, so this week's film was a Brody pick, right? That is correct. And Brody, talk about why you picked this film, man. Well, it's been a film that's, uh, well, it's it's a film that's been on my list that I've been wanting to do for quite some time now. Put uh, on our list, it take it off. Put it on the list, take it off. <laughs> At one point, Brody took it off, then I put it back on, and then we switched, <laughs> and then Brody put it back on. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's definitely been a film that, yeah, I've really wanted to talk about for a... Uh, Quite some time now, especially as an exploitative film. Um, to me, because you know how much I love my ghost stories and all that shit, I find that this is a little bit more intriguing, interesting, and it really digs into the undertones of human emotion. When is that you because have... you're a Victoria boy? No, no, not at all. <laughs> it helps, though, right? It does. It does sound biased, but <laughs> no, like, but I. That's just my favorite subgenre of mm-hmm. any like of the horror genre. Obviously, is that um, supernatural aspect. It's it's very it's a modern day gothic tale that's and it's got these twists and turns in it. But like I was saying before, it really really deep dives about the human emotion of things and the undertones of like loss and grief, and which we will elaborate on it a little bit more. And um, I remember, yeah, first time seeing this, I was just like fucking actually blown away by it. And and the, and the I don't know, probably the other thing too is. I'm actually glad that it's getting the recognition it deserves now, um, especially by a wider audience around the world. So, and it, and for me to hear people from around the world talk about this film and what it means to them, it's I, I like that sort of shit, you know. So to hear you guys and your thoughts on about this film today, it's going to be interesting. So yeah, that's why I chose Lake Mungo. Well, I'm excited to finally get around to talking about it. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that it's finally getting some attention, and that kind of segues into let's get physical. So boys, let's get physical. <laughs> This week's film is from Second Sight Releasing, dropped June 7th, 2021, runtime of 87 minutes, and it features archive commentary by producers David Rapsey and director of photography John Brawley, new audio commentary by Alexandra Heller-Nicholas and Emma Westwood, Captured Spirits, an interview with director of photography John Brawley, Ghost in the Machine, an interview with producer David Rapsey, A Cop and a Friend, an interview with actors Carol Petullo and James Lawson, Kindred Spirits. Filmmakers Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead on Lake Mungo. Hosting Spirits, filmmaker Rob Savage on Lake Mungo. Simulacra and Spirits, a video essay by film writer Josh Nelson. Autopsy of a Family Video, a video essay by filmmaker Joseph Wallace. A Kappa Deleted Scenes, a Rigid Slipcase. Perfect Bound Booklet with new essays by Sarah Appleton, Simon Fitzjohn, Rich Johnson, Mary Beth McAndrews, Shelley McMurdo, and an interview with actor James Lawson by Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. Plus, 
plus a rare behind the scenes photos in its region free disc brody you have it absolutely i had to i had to buy this film i've been searching high and low for it every fucking where i do have it on dvd and it was released i'm pretty sure by Mad Men uh production company down here um and then when i saw second sight films were releasing this fancy suave fucking box set of lake manga i'm like i can't even believe the uk have actually heard of this film and um yeah i it it doesn't disappoint it's got everything in it that you any blu-ray lover would fucking love to have as a collector's item now with this film being the unique presentation that it has and everything but like they clearly had to scan 35 millimeter stuff and 16 millimeter stuff because they use different types cameras here different types of footage i wonder if it looks better on the disc compared to the stream i watched via tubi tv uh you think it would but then again Hmm. it's presented in that way with the pixelation and the harshness in mind so you can only restore it so much and retain so much screen clarity you know what i mean exactly and i will just say this that's where they can get you Mm -hmm. like with the found footage concept back in like the 2000s but watching those uh slow dolly insert shots of the house itself with a nice digital camera it shows up beautifully so it's kind of a harsh way like it's kind of a hard one to actually yeah like you were saying you see them scenes and then you go back to the grainy bullshit Mm -hmm. and it's sort of yeah so Hmm. i don't know it's one of those discs it's like is the blu-ray a step up you know what i mean like yes yeah i don't know just is it worth the upgrade it is only because of the special features that second sight includes with it but like yeah yeah, yeah. when it comes to like yes exactly i don't know how much better it is uh just just a thought because this is such a unique film and it's presented in such a uh cool way that's all boys what'd you dig up about it so the majority of uh the information i was able to dig up for this episode it actually comes from second sight films and it's a interview with cinematographer john brawley and he discusses the idea of lake mungo so joel originally started working on the well i think he had it as this idea as a formal narrative but then turned it into this documentary we really embraced the idea of it however joel wrote it as a treatment rather than a script like it was kind of in script form but none of the dialogue was written down so the idea was that the actor would just improvise those lines there is a very detailed script in the treatment that had a lot of information of what would happen in given scenes but it was kind of up to the actors on how they would phrase those lines or work that into the scene so joel would just have a conversation with them as the interviewer and then them do things that were very spontaneous in a way that was another way that we thought was really important to keep the facade of being a documentary because as filmmakers you're constantly trying to perfect things rehearse things but one way to subconsciously tell the audience that this was real was to believe in those mistakes the way to leave them in would be to have those actors do them in a very natural way really the concept was make a film do it in a documentary form and leave in the accidents um so uh before i get to mine as well the information that i found um was an interview with the director joel anderson um so once we get to that one a little bit later there may be a tiny bit of overlap in information from what he says to what john says but it'll be a couple different points of view and there really is no other interviews with joel anderson so i wanted to try to at least include it but we do Uh, appreciate you citing your information you are a gentleman and a scholar (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you (laughs) provide sources (laughs) so uh john goes on to talk about finding the location um oh there's no sorry there's no quotations i didn't realize when it started (laughs) 
right. So uh, John talks about finding the location for the film. He says the production process involved us talking about this for six to 12 months, and we decided to just start shooting scenes. Uh, just going back, we started to look for the town to set the story in. We wanted it to be a town that was kind of a small country town, just big enough that not everyone would know everyone because it needs to have a lake where Alice would drown. We started looking on maps, drove a lot. We went to Tasmania, to which we didn't really find anything down there that suited us. And then we started driving around country Victoria. Of course, at the time, there was this once in a generation drought, but we eventually found Ararat. Now, we liked Ararat because it was about the right size and it's an interesting town, like there's a prison there. It was a little bit run down and a bit depressing at the time, so it suited what we were looking for. Fucking A. Even has an old mental asylum there. Really? Mm. Yes. Fun fact for y'all. So John uh, talks about shooting certain footage for the film. So once we thought of Ararat as the place we settled on, we started going up on weekends from Melbourne and started shooting B-roll for the overlay material, mainly the landscape shots you see in the film of atmosphere. We started doing that because we thought that if that it would be a, a component of the shoot, which would be for a few weeks. But if you look at most documentaries, the crew is usually embedded in for a long time and builds up this phenomenon number of shots. We kind of wanted a year's worth of B-roll. As we started to shoot this material, as we got involved with the other producers with David and Georgie, we cut a little teaser for a mood reel out of some of that footage. So we collected those shots and we had a friend read some of the potential lines from the film. It ended up being roughly a two-minute teaser to which we were able to get some private investment for. So John then goes on to talk about the film's representation. Uh, he says, Joel was really interested in authenticity and a feeling of truth. The idea of this film would be that if you were channel surfing late at night, you would have no idea that this was a construction of all actors. So that drove a lot of the visual decisions that we made. There's a point, this was written in like 2005 before they eventually released it in 08 because they had to push it back. Mm. So it does kind of make sense to channel surf in mid-2000s. So uh, Joel was also interested in representation. So there's the images that us documentary filmmakers present then there's visual evidence about the family themselves have through their own home. Then there's visual evidence that the family themselves have through their own home movies. And then some of the family members start constructing their own images as well. This made us very fascinated with the idea that sometimes the closer you look at something, the harder it is to see what the image is. That all wasn't accidental. That was all created and designed that way. But we have John also talking about using different cameras for the film. For me as a cinematographer, I had to do a lot of research because we had to change out the family history and create all of those home movies going back five to eight years. So some of that we created by doing that with the actors and we ended up getting different video cameras, different technology to which we ended up buying out of date high eight cameras and mini digital cameras that were a little more current. I love those little mid 2000s consumer grade cameras. I don't know why. I just love, <laughs> love that quality. Me too, Nick. Uh, Me too. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so John talks about Lake Mungo. It says Lake Mungo itself is an amazing place to go to. It's eerie because there's this certain kind of silence, certain kind of feeling you get when you're there, especially when you consider that it's one of the oldest locations of continuous human habitation. And that's what makes it really interesting. I kept accidentally finding Lake Mungo interviews with archaeologists <laughs> like, <laughs> when I was trying to find research for this. <laughs> because of that, I kept getting like archaeologists and just... <laughs> 
the scholars talking about the the lake itself. I was like, damn it. <laughs> when was that actually filled with water? How long ago? Oh fuck, Devon. I eh? <laughs> I didn't even know the place existed until I watched this fucking movie. <laughs> oh really? It's really not like super far away, right? A few hours. Uh, I think it's in New South Wales, up near Sydney. Yeah. It's like straight north of where Ararat actually is for like a few hours, I think, whenever I looked at it. Yeah, it's probably like nine, ten hours from oh, where shit. we're from. Yeah. Any fucking who. It's very deserted today, but it once was this amazing inland lake. I think that's what's interesting for Joel, talking about the idea of ghosts and that ghosts inhabit a location generally. Usually they inhabit because of unfinished business. So when the Palmers are haunted by somebody in their own family, they are either haunted literally by a spirit or by the unanswered questions that her unexpected departure leaves. And so I think Joel thought that Lake Mungo would be an interesting location within Australia as a significant site of continuous habitation. I agree. I concur. Doctor? <laughs> <laughs> You can go. <laughs> so John chooses his favorite shot slash scene. It's hard to define one scene or shot that I could say I was most proud of, but I was very proud of how successful the mobile phone footage was. Oh, yeah. People often mention that as being the most that affects them, and the very fact that we just made a choice to use a mobile phone, fuck me, to use a mobile phone to shoot that makes me very proud to be able to go, you don't really need all of these bells and whistles of a filmmaking machine. It's just a simple way to use a mobile phone. So it was great to see how powerful that one particular sequence was, even though it was the most lo-fi sequence in the whole entire film. He does have a good point. We should have had uh, John on to do the taco about it. <laughs> Absolutely. So, John discusses the undertones and meaning of the film, something that I will have Joel do later. <laughs> well, it is a very polarizing film, and I think some people don't have the patience for it, because they're usually expecting a jump scare horror movie. But if people are patient and watch it, usually I'm very proud of the way that people respond to it. Nine times out of ten, they find it an effective story. I think a lot of people might overlook Lake Mungo as a film, because they might assume that it's a horror film. But actually, Lake Mungo is much deeper than that, and more complex than a lot of people realize on its surface. To me, it's a story about grief and loss and hope, that grief and loss can affect a family. I think really the question the Lake Mungo asks is that ghosts are kind of created by that loss in people trying to explain when someone has left them. Is a ghost or a spirit a projection of that grief, something that people desperately want to have questions answered, and yet they can't? Spooky shit. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have Johnny Boy also talking about the audience reaction to the film. It's been really nice to see how well it keeps getting received when it pops up especially around Halloween. I get a bunch of emails from people discovering the film for the first time and, of, and often them discovering the film is just as much fun, especially if it's by accident or they are unexpecting it to be a work of fiction as well. So it's really nice to see it getting the continuation of having a life and grow for that appreciation. And now on to producer David Rapsey discussing the editing of the film. He says, the problems with the film really started with the edit itself. It was agonizing and I'm responsible for making it agonizing. I pushed and pushed. I think we did 23 edits of the film before I was reasonably satisfied that we got the best of it. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's fucked up. God. We have David on the test screenings of the film. We did a number of test screenings that were quite large groups of people and some quite small. There was one screening with just four young people under the age of 17 that really was a test case for me. The kids feared the film to which I hoped for. Then at the end when I told them that the film is in entirely a fabrication, they were insulted. They told me that they had seen notices of what happened to Al 
across in the paper, and I could not convince them that this was that, that this wasn't a real occurrence. It was amazing because we had managed to get our target audience showing us that we had made the grade in a mockumentary. David goes on to discuss the distribution of the film. He says the distribution and exhibition business in Australia is handled rather differently than it is overseas. Generally speaking, filmmakers apply to the distribution directly, and they can become involved either before you start shooting or directly after it's finished. In our case, we presented it to the main distributor in Australia, and they offered a deal with us, and they offered a deal to us, which unfortunately had two components that didn't work at all. One of them was that they wanted to do it as a viral campaign, and when we got down to talking turkey about how this was going to be handled, it turned out that they had absolutely no experience of doing a viral campaign. Then, they wanted us to essentially figure out how the campaign would run. We gave it a try, but honestly, we are not distributors. With the second distributor, we weren't able to accept their terms that they offered us, so then distributed here in Australia ourselves, very poorly and without much success. Then we have David on a potential fucking remake. Interestingly, there were offers to remake the film by Paramount, and currently the film is under option for a remake by Sony as a TV series. I can only hope that the sale goes through and the project gets the recognition that it needs. Joel is a very clever and talented man to which I think he deserves at least the recognition of the film. So, now, on to the interview that I mentioned previously uh, with Joel Anderson. In this interview uh, with After Dark Films, and this was during a 2009 weekend run at the Brisbane International Film Festival, uh, director Joel Anderson spoke about his reasons for creating the film uh, directly. He said, I had written a script for a more complex production, and it was proving very difficult to finance. I was speaking with some of the people, and I eventually ended up collaborating with on this film, and we thought it would be a great idea if we could write something that was purpose-built to be manageable and cheap and could maybe even be made in small sections so that we could pay for it ourselves and shoot it over weekends. We wanted for it to be sort of bite-sized pieces rather than a big, sprawling, complex film, so there were some very practical considerations that made me want to try and write a story that I could do on a low budget. And then, also, I think, with some of the themes and ideas of the film, I was really curious about technology, and technology is used to record people's lives and sort of tracks memories and how technology mediates a lot of our experiences. We have Anderson describing his thoughts on the story and what he believes about the themes of the movie. I don't think it's a supernatural thriller. I think it's meant to be an exploration of grief. That's why we shot it like a documentary, so we could look at different characters and how they responded to a situation. He elaborates on this as a hypothetical, the idea of someone in your family or someone you care for dying and being in a tragedy is the one thing I think everyone fears most. It's a very human very genuine fear and I think that it's also great for drama in that respect because it's a way of exploring a lot of things about what is important to people how people deal with the unthinkable happening and how people deal with grief and how things are senseless you know a terrible accident just doesn't make sense so it brings up all sorts of questions about is there logic to the way things work is there a pattern or is it just nonsensical so I think you have to confront really serious dilemmas he then goes on to speak about funding the film. He says, my experience on the whole has been very positive with the funding agencies. So we were funded through the Indivision scheme, uh, through the Australian Film Commission, now called Screen Australia. And because our brief is to make films that are maybe a little bit off the beaten track, and our brief is to keep our budgets low, from a normal person's point of view, it's a lot of money. From a filmmaking point of view, it's tiny. 
We also didn't wait around trying to get government money. We got private investment, quite a substantial amount. And we had that before we went to Indivision to see if we could get some more money. And I think it helped our case enormously because it meant that private investors thought that the project was saleable and legitimate. And I think governments are increasingly interested in having private investment as part of the film budgets. Didn't Snake Eater partially have funding through the Canadian government as well? Yeah, a lot of these uh, exploitation films would have uh, relied on local grants or government-funded grants to get uh, initial funding or additional funding to new uh, production. That'd be cool if they had more of that in the U.S. <laughs> uh, I believe they do in Georgia, and that's why you see a lot of things filmed in Georgia. Uh, okay, that makes sense. Yes. When asked about his thoughts on lower-budget genre films and their commercial success, Anderson states there's good and bad genre too, isn't there? Even if we're talking about exploitation films, I think filmmakers have more in common than not. So I just resist the visions that seem to be emerging, because I think all filmmakers want the same kind of thing, whether they tend more towards the more esoteric or they want very much to be the center of popular culture. All filmmakers want to connect with an audience, not necessarily a mass audience. Some of my favorite filmmakers are household names, but they've actually never made serious money, so their films could not be considered successful. The David Lynch's of the world, Paul Thomas Anderson, who everyone loves, is a great director of camera. He's not considered as a successful filmmaker, but he is a filmmaker who will win a lot of awards, but he doesn't generate a lot of money. So if he was an Australian, we would call him an A-grade and legitimate filmmaker. And so we should. He's incredibly talented. And why do I think he's good? Same reason all good filmmakers are. They're exciting. There's something going on, on an ideas level as well as a craft level. All their films are bold, even the Coen brothers. So hit and miss, but they never just deliver flat. They're trying to connect. And finally, when asked about the slow burning nature and the tension building within Lake Mundo, Anderson comments on it with, we didn't set out to make a really scary film. I think we wanted to make a film that would be somehow a curiosity. I love it when I see a film and Paul Thomas Anderson is a good example. He's a mainstream filmmaker, but I think his films are very unpredictable. I don't think they all work necessarily, but from moment to moment, you're really not sure where it might go. So you might come out and say, I didn't like the film much or it didn't work for me, but you don't say it was phoned in. Okay, boys, if that's all you got, it's time to talk about it. <laughs> Okay, so favorite performance of the film. I like the mom. June? Oh, I fucking had her too. Oh, I, I actually had the dad. <laughs> well, I'll explain the mom and then I'll shift things over to uh, Nick. And of course, Brody, if you have anything additional on top of what I have to say, you know. Okay, Thanks. so I think that the story kind of focuses on the mom and the way that she deals with the loss of her daughter. And as the way, as she discovers more and more about her, she feels more and more like self-resentment because she wasn't closer with her. And you see that progress over the course of the film until it comes to a head at the end. And I think that like, yeah, I think her character is like really flushed out more than anyone else we uh, see here. It's definitely more believable. I will have to say the dad, especially whenever he's talking about, like, the neighbor, totally believable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nick? Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, he does, I think, very, uh, it portrays very well that that sort of, like, shock kind of of the, like, still trying to process everything that happened, even though, you know, by the time of what's supposed to be the quote-unquote documentary being made, yes. um, you know, some time has already passed, but he still has that, like, everything's still not right. Like, we're kind of past it now, but at the end of the day, my daughter's still dead. Um. It, like the you can kind of see the sort of like quiet 
questioning himself when he talks about how like June being so like after the pictures being so feverishly sure that Alice is still alive that he's like questioning did I actually even see her body when I went to go identify it like and then and he, he kind of develops into that a little bit more whenever he does that you know I thought that's what I'm supposed to do I'm her dad like that's what I'm supposed to go do is identify and everything did I fuck that up like because he does you know he just slowly sort of over time um, as the movie progresses he lets a little bit more and more of just sort of that inner kind of loss out while still trying to like maintain that head of the family trying to kind of be a rock for you know Matt and his wife still through the whole thing um, I don't know I just kind of liked that as well plus a little bit of props to uh, Martin Sharp as Matt too I did actually kind of like crazy. his character <laughs> like like visually or well if you're gonna bring him up I'll, I'll just interject there you you okay. mentioned you mentioned like the dad getting uh like question like having some sort of form of self-doubt after yes. seeing those photos well when yeah. he finds out that his son manufactured that shit and therefore imposed that self-doubt on him you yeah. think that he'd be more angry at his son and less forgiving than he is do you think it's just a subject like it's a matter of the fact like this situation just happened and I'm I'm too preoccupied to get mad at you because that really shows some glaring issues in the fact that her brother went through all this trouble to create fake images of her ghost like you know what I mean I, I just I feel like think... they move on from it too quickly it, it... that is fair uh, I do think it might be kind of a like a little bit of a trying not to lose a connection with yeah. your one remaining yeah. kid even if you don't really realize exactly why they did what they did because even the mom points it out as well she's like I'm not exactly totally on board with you know but Matt's it's never reasons talked about for doing again. this you know what I mean he's just kind of like they could have gone more into it sure yeah it's not a 100% perfect film by any means it's just you know, like I like the way that they're represented they feel real that's the least real i think that the characters do feel is their treatment of you know finding out what matt did yeah look i'm gonna have to go with the mother um you know i i think she plays this obviously believable mother that's just lost her child and pretty much everything in her life after that you know you can definitely see the dread and loss of grief of it's just riddled all over her face uh she sells it quite quite intensely to an extent you know and there's even those scenes when she's being hypnotized and it all plays out those flashback scenes when it cuts back in between her talking to the hypnotist or the, the psychiatrist about the vision she sees of allison and then and then it cuts back to allison being hypnotized as well you can definitely see the raw emotion between those two carried out um, and then when it cuts back into the interview, um, yeah, it just, it's, it's amazing stuff because it just sort of comes full circle, but she just sells it so, so well. Um, I will give a special mention to the father because yeah, I, I agree with Nick and what you said. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. The mother for me, I was, I did have something in my head to say what you guys were saying about the father there before. I'm just trying to think I fucking forgot it. Um, this is embarrassing. It happens. <laughs> oh yeah. Maybe when the kid did what he did with Allison's photo, maybe. Maybe the father was just like, that's his way of dealing with it even though it was a bit of a shit act to fucking go through. But at the same time, it's like what Nick said, like you don't really want to keep sort of pestering him to the point where it's just don't want to lose him because you've already lost your daughter. You know, you don't want to fucking lose yeah. your son as well. Yeah. Plus everyone so, grieves yeah. in different ways and it grief makes it a lot of it completely irrational too. Yeah. yeah. So, mm -hmm. so set piece, we have a lot of different set pieces in this film. Uh, I'm going to have to go with the house itself. And of course, Lake Mungo, uh, Lake Mungo, like Brody said earlier in the in the podcast, it just looks cool. Uh, it's rad. I think it's really like dark and creepy and mysterious, especially shot through super low light on cell phone cameras like yeah, that, yeah. like mid 
2005 cell phone camera quality. I just think like any sort of like empty lake just is going to look creepy because it's not supposed to be like that. You know what I mean? Like that used to be home to so much life and now it's just barren. abandoned. Yeah. yeah. I think that's what makes it so creepy. But yeah, uh, set piece. Anytime you see like those claustrophobic interiors of the house and the ghosts just shoved in there somewhere. Super cool. Uh, Brody, Nick? I was say, yeah, um, I probably will have to go with the house as well. Um, just because so something that it did for me uh, around when this movie would have come out or about when it's at least set, um, at least when I was a kid, I was watching a ton of all of those like ghost hunting shows and stuff that were coming out. So like Ghost Hunters, I think came out it was like 2004. Ghost Adventures wasn't out yet, but I was watching a lot of stuff like that. And then just the it has they nailed the hell out of that really creepy zoom in just artifacted um compression noise they made this completely benign looking home so creepy and claustrophobic that like i've seen the movie before and i know that alice's face in the little mirror is fake and it's matt put a tv up and it's in a mirror but i cannot help but still get a little chill that goes down my spine with just those hallway shots and just the stillness and the quietness and you're waiting for something to happen even if you know that nothing's gonna happen you still get that just little inkling little ting in the back of the head and I don't know. I, lo- I love that they were able to pull that off, that I've seen this movie before. And I know the twist and everything. And I'm still I'm watching it and being like, I'm still getting a little creeped out. <laughs> but yeah, yeah um, no, I'd have to agree with you, gentlemen, on the house. Um, you know, yeah, like what you guys have already pretty much said, those long, dark corridors that just have that old aesthetic crafting into it. And um, especially a house that was built in the old old days. Um, I, I will just say the way that the camera is framed and lit, throughout the house in certain scenes yeah it had me looking in every corner of each frame for something even though knowing nothing is there just plays with that paranoia uh, paranoia aspect to an extent um and i also guess that the fact what that everything that, else pretty much happens oh, i knew you'd like that um <laughs> yeah but I, nah, look I, I also guess the fact that everything else you know pretty much happens in this house uh definitely helps that uh however like i will say what TJ Lake Mungo itself is pretty intriguing, you know, with the rocks and claymation of nature doing its own thing. It's yeah, mysterious. It's uh, pretty interesting. But yeah, the house. Question for you, Brody. So compared to yes. your house that you grew up in, what is yep. the house we see in this film compared to? Like, is that your typical style house you have around that area or? Absolutely. There's a lot of homes um, that are built exactly like that with its tall ceilings, mm-hmm. um, even the old fireplace in each bedroom, because there was a lot of like, obviously back in the old days, like, um, yeah. That was just how they were constructed for some reason. Uh, I'd have to dig a little bit deeper for that. But like you go into some bedrooms and they'd have this really weird fireplace wall set up. I don't know if you notice in Allison's room, you see that like where her bed is and to the left of it, it's like it cuts off a corner of the room and it's yeah. a fireplace. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of that old aesthetic of high ceilings, even though it's only almost gothic architecture pretty much yeah yeah it's uh it's a lot different um but yeah there's i i never grew up in one like that but there are a lot of homes around uh where i grew up that are exactly like that so yeah fair enough thank you for that insight no worries favorite scene or shot now this can easily be just like hey (laughs) come on now but uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't I don't want to say the obvious because as effective and as cool as it is, I think there's some some more fun stuff in this. Uh I love the backyard shot. That's cool. That's Are you talking about cool. the uh the reveal or yeah. 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 Okay. That, that, that's cool as fuck. The one from the credits? 
Yes. That was my favorite yes. shot as well. <laughs> I mean, like, you can save cell phone footage with her fighting herself and shit. Yeah. Like, it's, it's kind it's of creepy. It's creepy. But, like, creepy shit. just kind of like, hey, pay attention to the other shit that went on throughout the whole film and see stuff for yourself. Because, like, hey, they went and debunked all of this. But there was signs that maybe it's not all there. And and that's cool that that adds another layer to this film. I think including scenes and shots like that are just so important to creating a unique story. And especially in a genre like this, it allows it to stand out. And especially the, so those reveal scene or shots from the end. Yeah. Um. If you go back, those aren't like just, ah, oh, we composited this in for the end for the reveal or something. If you, They're there. Like, because rewatching this again. Yeah, it, it's everything that they point out in those is there um, just hiding. And that's, you know, I think probably part of the reason why it was still like a little creepy, mm-hmm. even on the second rewatches, because like I'm watching for those bits as well. I'm just trying to spot them out. Um, at least for scene, I think my favorite scene, Brody mentioned it earlier, is the inner cut um, hypnosis set. Uh, sessions between alice and june and i thought it was so freaking cool how they laid that together show i think it's almost supposed to be a representation of how they just like could not connect because june talks about she couldn't connect with her own mom she feels bad about not being think about that concept the concept in and of itself that she had dreams of that's the thing of her doing ghostly activity prior to dying because she had so she had because when it's it's cutting through it june does the hypnosis with ray after did ray uh, ever show the family that tape uh the tape of of no 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 no. (laughs) that was her neighbor neighbor. that was brett and his wife the rock spiders that fucking fled the the hypnosis tape that he did with alice yeah um i don't know if it i don't think it explains that they that the parents see it i know that that, hey alice came to me a couple months before she died i don't know yeah if he ever was like hey here's the tape look at them both i don't think so i think it was just supposed to be in the documentary that the audience sees because he they ask him i don't think there's any no there's no one actually like talking to the characters they're they're just talking at the camera Mm -hmm. pretending there's an interviewer but he does pretend to answer the question of why didn't you go and and tell them that you met alice beforehand and he was like i didn't think of it so much as hiding it from them as i thought of it as protecting the confidentiality of her that she came to me um but when it it was intersplicing those and you show that alice was having the dreams that something was coming in like to her room and then it, she realized it's her mom like standing there and she's like was well, she doing anything she's saying anything she's like no she's just standing there and now she's leaving and it that's intercut with june in her dream walking down the hall going to alice's room opening it and she's sitting there and she's not doing anything and then they leave is like it's set up to be this like they almost connected through that dream after her death like yes because J- june's was after every, and, and all of that the same with I, the scene where she's at the foot of the bed yeah yeah no like that was it it was just like i just i that sort of build up and just like as you kind of slowly like start to realize oh they're about to actually meet in the hypnosis thing and they just can't do it and they just connect and it's it's really sad if you really think about it you know what tops that scene off though is like what you were saying then right at the end of the interview alice says something about she sees her family and then they're driving away or something yes and then and it's that photo reveal at at the end end. that's what tops Uh everything off so that 
they're standing in front of the house when they move out and she's in the window. Yeah. That's your favorite, Brody, is the ghost photo in the back? Yeah. Well, originally it was going to be the the reveal, but Mm -hmm. if we had to re-choose, I would say that that is because, like what Nick said when he went through all that, to see that photo at the end that's been there from the beginning and to hear Alice's story intertwined with her mum's and see that photo, it's so fucking sad and it's haunting at the same time that she is now going to be there in that house for the rest of eternity or whatever and her family's mm-hmm. gone it's an interesting concept and i and i like that the film goes through the trouble of tying everything together for us mm-hmm. in some way and it, it goes full circle I, it does the opposite of what lynch film does it i mean it, it finishes you and leaves you unfinished yeah yeah <laughs> <Lynch>. <laughs> You don't feel utterly cucked at the end. Right. (laughs) There's a reason we all keep going back to Lynch, though. Yes. (laughs) So the next question, I don't know if that really applies to this film as much, but... Just effect? Yeah, really the effect? I would say effect. Well, for my effect, I had the photo reveal of the backyard at the end credits. That effect of, you know... That affected me, mm-hmm. and I was actually like blown away by that. And it's just it, it's it's there to mislead you from the start, and it's another fantastic little twist on that story. And it doesn't take away from the story to an extent; it just adds that extra layer that's basically the cherry on top. And when you watch the film again, it plays out in your head with a different perspective. In that sense of now that you know that, and you go back and you puzzle the pieces together, I kind of still feel it doesn't take that away. It still has that gut punching effect on it when you see that. Over in the far right corner, and it's the way that she's postured. It's it feels like the ring or something. You, you know, like it's I don't know. Yeah. It's just something about it just creates that haunting atmosphere about it. And that was the effect it had on me. I was actually like, it's, it's like closed because she's supposed to be the ghost in the photo, but she looks scared and lost and mm-hmm. like hunkered down in the corner and everything. And it just makes it that much punchier of a reveal. I think it's it's all Absolutely. body language, you know. Yeah, not so much a film that relies on visual effects as a does just the visual aspect of creepy image imagery and like like I said body language and just what Brody mentioned the way somebody was sitting it's just that makes the difference on whether this scene is creepy or it's just a shot of something uh, right. thoughts on story so I want to fuck with you guys a little bit here uh, I thought about this and I want to draw the comparison right now so I talk about Lynch right mm-hmm. Brody mentioned earlier in the notes about a reboot via te- television but isn't that just Twin Peaks oh, if you, I've if only you, seen if, a couple if, okay well this, this is more direct mm-hmm. towards Nick. Palmer, Alice Palmer. Laura Palmer. Oh. She oh. had a secret, she had a secret life where she was fucking somebody else in that and, and then it's a ghost story intertwined with dreams of her own death and stuff drawn out over a reboot would be Twin Peaks but in Australia. Am I not right? I think you're right. But I wouldn't be mad at an Australian Twin Peaks. I'm it, not. It's an Australian Twin Peaks that doesn't leave you utterly cucked at the end and it's told in a found footage style. So like a reboot would essentially play out I think in the way a Twin Peaks story would in Australia because because uh, you just have to draw the comparisons like Palmer the weird sex tape stuff the foreseeing your own death the nightmare part of it the like yeah you know what I mean like the disappearing people and stuff and then like the, the threads and tying everything together I think when you view it through that light you almost have to see did he take inspiration from Twin Peaks when creating this and is this a spin on that story because when you take Alice Palmer you can see clear inspirations from Laura Palmer 
Palmer. I mean, he in that interview, he specifically mentioned his fa- some of his favorite filmmakers were Paul Thomas Anderson and, and David, David Lynch. Lynch. If you so, look about where the bodies were found in or near a body of water and just the weird eccentric people surrounding that, even a level mm. of hoaxing went on. I just think that adding all those layers to this and just having those... That makes me like this movie more right? than I realized. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just was watching it and I was like, damn, Alice feels like Laura sometimes. Familiar. Because <laughs> like even in Twin Peaks, they use footage of like yeah. Bobby in mm. them hanging out and they reference it and they go back to it and they have to solve mysteries through that footage. Again, utilized mm. here on another level. You, The more you look into it, the, the longer you look at the Twin Peaks story and then compare it to this, I think you'll see the more, the way, the connections. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. Yeah, no, that, mm, I, I just, like that. I, I wanted like to hold that off until that. the very end to you guys. I just wanted to just like, yes, I'm so proud of this comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I really do. That actually really makes me enjoy this movie more. <laughs> <laughs> but boys, yeah, anything else you want to say on top of what I just said? Because like, I love the fact that it's a story of grief and stuff and they touch yeah. upon all that stuff. But like, I also think it's like somebody coming to terms with like their death and stuff and it, telling the way of like the of like the unique story of like how someone reacts when they find out they're about to die like it's just weird you know it's interesting how they try to tackle both of those stories yes they tackle with alice trying to come to grips with the fact that she's like something bad isn't just going to happen she says it specifically i feel like something bad has already happened it hasn't gotten to me yet but it's on its way Mm -hmm. so like it kind of deals a little bit with that inevitable fact of every single one of us is going to die at some point it's already happened it just hasn't gotten to you And Um, she made the conscious decision to just give up right then and there. I don't think she so much gave up as she was like, I at least need to prepare for it. Like that bit with... Well, she gave up all of the things that were most important to her. Yeah. And they mentioned... Burying the phone, her her favorite uh, bracelet. Um, Oh God, what else was in that bag? (laughs) But just like the burying that to make sure that there was at least a chance that after she was gone, her family could still figure out the things about her she wanted them to know but could not tell them. Um, How long ago did she die after coming back? back from Lake Mungo. Was that ever like set um, in stone it or was, did we not pay attention? It was <laughs> not long. Not long at all. Um, because I think like it was they like said at the two. end, and I only say that at the end, is like she gave up, is because they said that we noticed the decline but we just kept going forward. We noticed that she was oh, yeah, and we just kept going forward. So I think that she gave up on some level that they weren't paying attention because they were so caught up in their own lives and I think that that's what adds to the grief at the end, is that when they go back and reflect on themselves, they're like, fuck, the signs were there and we did nothing to prevent it. I, I think you're right. Um, I think it is only a couple of weeks because I do remember them saying that she drowned in mid-August. Yeah. And whenever they mention, oh, like Mongo, this is where she went on that school trip. They say it was like August 2nd or something. Okay. Brody, anything you want to comment here? Uh, I, I'm sorry to isolate you there with that Twin Peaks talk. You really need to put the time into watching that, buddy. But uh, uh, I do too. I've seen a couple episodes. I have. Um, <clears throat> no, look, um, I think you're both right. Um, I mean, thoughts on the story? And like, look, like I said earlier, I love supernatural films. It's like the genre, the gothic aesthetic, whatever the fuck it is about them that I love. Um, there are a lot, obviously, about grief and loss, but we never really see one that's based on a documentary stylized version. And uh, I think it works so well with the storytelling. They don't go too overboard with this haunting experience of just this ghost. I mean, it's in there a bit, but Subtle. they don't overly play it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, they had to. But- 
to achieve what he wanted, where he said, I, I want people to be watching TV late at night, come across this and not know that it's fake. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Until the and, end. Like, yeah. But they, but the thing it is for me, they really deep dive more into the events that lead up to a death. And I, I find that more fascinating to play yes. out. And then it mm-hmm. come, then it come in with her spiritual presence known later. But then it makes us feel like we are the interviewer and we are with them on this fucking journey. Uh, nice. for real. And it's strong storytelling mm-hmm. and clever writing. Um, or if, if they do remake the fucking TV series, they got to add the zigzag flawed in the red drape room. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up. The, uh, makes you the interviewer because I noted earlier that. You never hear anyone talking to the characters. Well, the that's characters. because it was directed from that point of view. Like the way that right. Homeboy, what's his name, that went, the director? Joel Anderson. Uh, Joel Anderson. Joel. Like the way when you guys were talking about the notes and stuff, it's like he was the one on set asking questions to get them to perform. So kind of like mm-hmm. the way Lynch directs, where he kind of talks to the person as they're, they're in character or as they're that character to get them to react a certain way. I think he was doing the same thing. Again, drawing comparisons to Lynch because I can do that for days. Uh, <laughs> I want to have who's a black a, who's a better say. director Lynch or Argento uh, I think they're two completely different uh, artists and the comparison's just too different <laughs> to uh, to say anyway impact and takeaways I'll just start things off and I'll let Nick take it away I think this film coming out in 2008 really hampered it it was coming out in a time where like everybody was doing found footage so it kind of got pushed under the rug and lost in the mix With that being said, I'm happy that we finally got to it because this film is a standout where other films heavily rely on jump scares and the shock factor. This film really relies on emotion and for you to put the pieces together and the mystery of it all. And I like the fact that they went through the trouble of connecting those strings and layering the story the way they did. So yes, this film is definitely a standout in a genre of films that are truly unremarkable. Uh, Yeah. Thank you, Brody, for picking this film. No worries. We finally got around to it eventually, but yeah, I'm happy you guys were able to elaborate it on a way that I enjoyed. So it's interesting, Nick. It's good stuff. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, it, it, I mean, it does. It is definitely a standout in the mockumentary style. It's a standout in the found footage style. Um, I think it beat the first paranormal activity to the market by a year. But the problem is, is this one wasn't distributed too well. And I mean, they even say that like Anderson himself was like, we, we distributed it ourselves in Australia badly. Uh, (laughs) So uh, I, I'm interested to think what impact this movie could have had, had it had the distribution and backing that say the first paranormal activity did where if they had, if they had put money and attention into a slow burn like this, which is hard to do because this movie is harder to sell than paranormal activity. Yes. To sell paranormal activity. You say we put up security cameras, we make things really dark and we put loud noises. It scares the crap out of paranormal activity came out. Oh, seven. Uh, Cloverfield, oh, 08, and yeah. I thought Paranormal Activity was 2009. Dang. Okay. And um, Rec, 07. I love Rec. So I this is Rec literally so in the thick of the found footage It's race. right in the middle. Yeah. But this is the slowest burning now, one, I think, that I've seen from those. Question. Other than- On the cover, it has, like, it's part of a collection. Was that how it was released in the U.S.? As part of, like, those direct-to-DVD horror things? After Dark Films. Is that what that, is that, like, one of those? Yeah, part of, like, an eight set or whatever the fuck ah. you call it. Yeah, that definitely would make it not as uh, prevalent oh, yeah. in U.S. markets. Yeah, you're right. Uh, After Dark Horror Fest 4 had Lake 
Pokemon Go on. DVD yeah, that's like the, a Walmart bin special, you know? It's still very, very yeah. cheap. It's eight yeah. movies and it's $10 for a DVD of it. Anything else you want to expand on, Nick? Sorry for interrupting you there a little bit. but uh. No, no, you are totally fine. Um, no, I mean, that's that's really about it. I mean, this movie is having more of an impact, I would say, now. Yes. Um, considering that it's starting to be more prevalent. I think I first heard about it. Um, we've mentioned him before. I know uh, TJ's not his biggest fan, but Ryan Hollinger <laughs> was how I found Um Because he called it the set. It was the, I think it was the saddest horror movie you've never seen. And I, I kind of have to agree with him. This is probably one of the saddest horror movies. It is sad. Horror, horror yes. movies I have seen. Uh, but it's good. It's very good. And I think it tells a very important story with how to deal with the unknown and the fact that we're all going to die and we don't know how to deal with it. And we won't know how to deal with it when people we care about die too. But yeah, no, I, I mean, I'd like to see where this goes with more impact in the future. I would be interested to see what an alternate history would have been like where this was the popular style and not wreck and yes. bloody and screaming and loud. Granted, I do like Cloverfield. Thank you, J.J. Abrams. I like Cloverfield. I love Wreck. Quarantine, not so much. I love Wreck. <laughs> Quarantine's poop town, but we'll not talk about that. Brody? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, you guys pretty much summed it up perfect. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm like Nick. I would have loved to have seen what it could have been if it had got the proper distribution behind it. Um, yeah, I look. I love the fact that it's a film that really flexes its muscles in the storytelling about grief and loss. Um, you know, it's a different take on the supernatural genre, like I've explained before. Um, but yeah, like an insight into a loved one dying and trying to cope with that loss, that's a fucking hard thing. It's a touchy subject to talk about, not only in words, but visually on screen. Um, so you can tell that the creators really took the effort and time to um, look into the human emotion side of things and they just wanted to create something um, different by the looks of this and they succeeded extremely well because yeah, it, it, it's much more than a mockumentary. It's a powerful fucking film, um, whether or not you believe it's real or not. So Fuck. yeah, mm -hmm. and I was at, and yeah, and like I said earlier, I'll, I'm just glad that, yeah, you guys were able to watch it and hear your thoughts on it because, yeah, it's definitely an underappreciated gem and yeah, one of the greatest horror movies you've never seen. So. so, boys, let's rate this bad boy. This week's rating is Badly Pixelated Freeze Frame of a Dead Girl's Face out of five. Brody, it's your pick. Start us off, big boy. Uh, 4.1. Slick Nick? 4.1 as well, actually. I'm going to give it a three, and that is an LCE score of 3.7 out of five for 2008's Lake Mungo. That was a fun one. That was an interesting one for sure. Thank you guys for joining us on another episode of Lights, Camera, Exploitation. I'll see you guys next week with... Roma. Dario Argento's Trauma from 1993. Brad Dourif, Asi Argento, Geckos, Decapitated Heads, Stylish Shots, all the fun stuff. Can't wait. This is the Pod Boss. See you next week. This is your DKB signing out saying I'll catch you mother lickers next week. Slick Nick signing off. See y'all next week. Y'all have a good one.
John is arsed, you motherfucker. <laughs> How dare you cut me off, you cunt. <laughs>